The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Jeremiah will be fairly close to the middle of your Bible. If you land in the middle somewhere, you might be in the Psalms. You're welcome to just turn over to the right and you'll land in Jeremiah chapter 16. The large numbers on the page are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to go through chapter 16 through verse 11 of chapter 17. So um, a, a, quite a large selection this morning. Let's first begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll study together. Father, thank you for God, the goodness of your grace and peace in Christ, and the opportunity we have now to come and feast on your word, which nourishes us and strengthens us and revives our soul. And I pray that we are here hungry and thirsty, knowing that we feast and dine and the banquet table of the risen Lord. And though we get but a small morsel, God, of what you have to offer, we would be so satisfied with what we receive. So to that end, God, I pray for our hearts and our mind to be open and receptive to the, the teaching, that the Spirit would illuminate our minds to, to hear and heed the word of both warning, correction, and encouragement. Lord, that you would be with me as I proclaim the wonders and the goodness of the gospel through your word, and now, Father, that you would so move in this room, in this place, that we would uh, be forever changed by what we hear, and more often, what we see by what we hear. So, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are resuming our study through the book of Jeremiah now and through the remainder of this year. Uh, we began earlier this year the book of Jeremiah and took a break. I think we last preached from the book of Jeremiah at the end of June, where we began our summer series through the wisdom literature and then through the major prophets. And then, of course, Jake last month walked us through the rest of the book of Genesis, sort of a journey with biblical theology there. So now we return back to the book of Jeremiah, and I want to give you just a quick recap of where we've been, just kind of reorient ourselves in the book about what's going on in the background so that we can make more sense of why Jeremiah is speaking, what he's saying, and why we should pay attention. Now, Jeremiah, of course, is a prophet, and a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. Now, God, of course, can speak for himself, and he often does this by directly speaking to his people through a word or a voice. Uh, but often he uses mediated ways to speak. And in the Old Testament, we see this come by the means of a prophet. And a prophet comes and he speaks for God. And at this point in time, Israel is not doing well. Uh, the kingdom has split in two. The ten tribes of Israel in the north and the single tribe of Judah in the south had split. And the tribe of Israel, the tribes of Israel have already fallen into captivity nearly a hundred years prior to when Jeremiah is doing his ministry. They fall into the Assyrian captivity because of their sin and their idolatry. And that leaves the southern tribe of Judah, there in the south, kind of alone, surrounded by sort of the idolatrous uh, pagan nations that are threatening them. 
And they are following suit after their elder sister, Israel. And Jeremiah was sent by God to preach and warn them that if they did not change their ways, what had happened to the tribes of Israel will happen to them. And we get the sense that it almost becomes inevitable as Jeremiah is preaching that this is coming. As we make our way through the book, it becomes clearer and clearer that the, the hearts of the men and women in Judah will not turn in repentance to God. And so the threat of the nation, Babylon, is looming greater and greater over the city and eventually will take it over. Now, by the time the book of Jeremiah is compiled and is being read by its readers, this has already taken place. It's being read by those who are already in exile in Babylon as they, as they wonder, is God's work done? Has he abandoned us forever? Or will he continue to keep his promises? How did we get here? The book of Jeremiah reminds them that they were to listen and to heed the warnings of God, but they didn't. And yet there's still a word for them, a hope of redemption that they can heed even in exile and that God may restore them in their faith. So by the time we get to Jeremiah 16, we see that there's been warning after warning after warning. And sometimes in the bleakest of sense, Jeremiah says that, that this will come, the nation of Babylon will overtake you, and there will be great stress, great trial, and God will withdraw his presence from you. And in some sense, Jeremiah 16 and 17 gives us more of the same. And it is a prophet, and if there's anything that is... A uh, prophet does its hammer the same thing over and over again, hoping that the people would respond. So in one sense, Jeremiah is preaching the same message. Repent. You're about to be taken over. The Babylonians are about to sack Jerusalem. They're about to destroy everything that you hold dear. God is about to punish you. Turn. Repent. Be restored. And yet we see the hardness of their heart over and over again, resisting Jeremiah's message mocking Jeremiah. In fact, we learn previously of their own attempt to take Jeremiah out of the picture because they rather him be quiet than continue to bother. Eventually, Jeremiah himself will come under captivity and be carted off into exile and ultimately die at the hands of the Babylonians. But what we have here in Jeremiah 16 and 17, and we'll read it in chunks along the way as we go, is something like a spiritual mountain journey. Now, we're going to begin and end down on the bottom of the foot of the mountain. So in the beginning of chapter 16, we begin there where the presence and the peace of God is lost by Judah. That God is threatening to remove his presence, remove his peace, to remove the blessing away from his people because of their sin. But the spiritual journey up to the top of the mountain will reveal a greater view of God's hope and redemption for his people. And there the prophet will, will show them what he has in store. What ultimately will happen not just to them, but to their enemies. And then we'll make our way back down the side of the mountain, again, where we see theologically what God is up to and how we are to understand all that has come before and what will come after. So in the first 13 verses of chapter 16, we see ultimately that Jeremiah does what Jeremiah does best, which is preach the warning of God's impending judgment, and he does this, much like some of the other prophets we've seen over the course of the summer, by embodying in his own flesh, in his own ministry, demonstrating in his own body the bleakness of sin and the bitterness of God's judgment. 
Remember when we studied Ezekiel and God called him to do often strange things to demonstrate for the people just what God was planning to do? Well, he does this with Jeremiah as well. So consider verse 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking. God says, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons and daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. Thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, Why? Why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? And you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. This is obviously a fairly stern and somber warning that the prophet gives to his people. And that though they may grieve and lament under this burden, they may question why they deserve this in the first place, it will be clear that God's judgment will come upon them lest they turn from their sin. They say, have forgotten, forsaken, and turned their backs on God's word and his ways. Not just once or twice or a few times, but over the course of generations, God's people have sought other gods and have replaced the place of prominence, of supremacy that God ought to occupy in the life and in the land with lesser gods made up by other men, borrowed from other nations, filled with idolatrous and promiscuous practices. What was once a people set apart for God now has become indistinguishable from the nations around them. And God says, ultimately, if that is what you desire, that is what you will get. And so he tells Jeremiah something strange. He says, don't marry, therefore don't start a family. Don't take a wife, don't have kids. And in the life of the, of the congregation, don't participate. When judgment comes, you're not to mourn. You're not to try to comfort. And anything that happens, any sinking out of joy, you are not to celebrate with them. 
Do not go into the mourning house or the feasting house. Do not comfort or console. You are to separate yourself from this people. He does this not simply because he wants to spare Jeremiah the anguish and the sorrow of seeing his own children potentially killed or carted off or his wife taken from him. Certainly the sorrow of his own people being led into captivity and exile would be sorrow enough. But it's not simply to spare Jeremiah the sorrow. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He has plenty of sorrow to go around. It is because he wants Jeremiah to embody in his own ministry, in his own flesh, in his body, what God intends to do with Israel and with Judah. The key verse there is in verse 5. He says that I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord. My loving kindness and my compassion are here in the ESV. It says, I have taken away my peace, my steadfast love, and my mercy. Now this, this was one of the worst outcomes that Israel could have ever imagined, that God would withdraw His peace, His presence, His, His blessing from the people. Now the peace and the blessing, the prosperity, all comes really to mean the same thing. Favor with God. We can see there at the end of the chapter, or verse 13, for I will show you no favor. So with God's presence comes the favor of God, the blessing of God, the prosperity of God. Not only that, comes the joy that comes from knowing God and walking with God. He says that he will silence the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. He will silence the voice of gladness in the city not simply by causing all what is good to be removed from the city, but by removing himself. He says, I have withdrawn or taken away my place. Now, in the Hebrew, this is the same word, gathered up, which is often associated with burial, with funerals. What happens when somebody would die is that their belongings and their persons would be gathered up, withdrawn together and placed in the ground. So God here is lamenting and speaking of burying his peace in the ground with his people. This is a funeral for God's peace in his place. So he tells Jeremiah, you are to embody in your very life and ministry by not taking a wife, by not having a family, by not celebrating the life of the people, by not participating and comforting and consoling you are, to, you are to demonstrate in your own life and ministry what will happen through judgment. He embodies the bleakness of sin and the bitterness of judgment. And this restriction on the prophet's life is to be a prophetic teaching, symbolic for the whole nation. So here Jeremiah doesn't just simply proclaim God's word. He's embodying that word and living it out for them. This would be a strange sight to see a man whose livelihood is often wrapped up in the taking of a wife and a having of children. More than riches, family is important, particularly in this day and age. And to intentionally go without and to distance himself from the life of the body is a stern warning and judgment that he embodies in his own ministry. In other words, we can say that Jeremiah is called to rehearse in his body the reality of the absence of God's peace and provision. He was to be, in many ways, a living warning to God's people. And he goes on and says, well, why will 
People ask, why is this happening? And you will tell them that it's because of their sin. And it says, therefore, in verse 13, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night. For I will show you no favor. God will hand them over to the lusts and the desires of their flesh. That which they have built for themselves, God will give them over completely. He uses, of course, the nations of other, the armies of other nations, and he uses the, the sins of other countries, but he brings his wrath and his judgment to bear because of their forsaking and neglecting of the covenant with which he had entered into with them. This is a very stern and sober warning that he will hurl them out into the land. And so this sober warning requires then a needed word of hope. And so we continue in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of, of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather, as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Well, if Jeremiah is called to embody the bleakness of sin and the bitterness of judgment and to rehearse in his own body and ministry the absence of God's peace and presence and prosperity among them, then he also, through the prophet, delivers a word of hope, a promise of restoration and coming recompense against the enemies. So there we start at the bottom of the mountain and we see that there is there is the peace in the presence of God lost because of their sin and neglect. But Jeremiah is called to lead the people up to the top, to the summit of the mountain, where he then wants to show them the grander view of God's purposes and promises beyond the present difficulty, and beyond the coming judgment. That he would see that there's a land far off that they couldn't see from the bottom but can see from the, from the view of the top, where the judgment of God falls not upon them, not permanently, but upon their enemies and upon the enemies of God. In fact, where he sets their gaze is on God's provision and peace with them for all eternity. The restoration of the promises and the covenant of God is theirs and will be theirs in God's kindness. But first they must be under the hand of discipline for their sins. Often we're led through rocky terrain and toil so that we can see small glimpses of the view that God has in store for us. Brother says, I hope that part of the reason that you come to church or gather with the saints is so that you can sharpen and remind one another that your present circumstances is not the permanent one you will face forever if you are in Christ. That we are called to lead each other through the, the word of God to the top of the mountain and say, look, there's a clearing here. Do you believe that God has a greater purpose and promise for your life? Do you believe that the, the hope and the restoration of God's people will be yours to lay hold of? You have to step back often and see the forest through the trees and know that the current circumstances we face, even if we know we have a long uphill battle ahead of us, is not the end of God's word. God's word of judgment is never his final word for his people. It is always followed by his word of restoration. 
Thus we see the declaration that Yahweh will show no mercy or love or favor is, is not permanent, but is temporal. There is always to be mercy in the future for those who are known by God. So he says very sternly, on verse 13, I will show you no favor, and I will hurl you into a land. And then in verse 14 he says, but I will bring you back, and I will show you favor and mercy. I think the juxtaposition, the contrast here, is meant to be very striking. In one breath here, the prophet says, you'll be cut off in the land, hurled violently out of the land that you have been given by me and into a land that you won't escape. Yeah, there is a day, and it's coming, declares the Lord. Well, I will give you the land that you will be delivered, and I will show you mercy. So though there are judgments and disciplines in our life, and every good gift comes from him who is above, and every circumstance and trial comes at the direction and the providence and the orchestration of God's perfect will, it is never a permanent circumstance we find ourselves in. Friends, you must remember that. That the sin and the difficulty and the temptations that you face in life is never a permanent circumstance. Now, you may face the same temptation or sin battle all your life, but that sin and that temptation is not permanent because death is in the end. Because though in this own life we may not have relief from that temptation or that particular sin, though we could or we may, that even death is not the end, even death is not permanent. But that the greatest hope of restoration lies on the other side of the grave. And so, yes, in our life we can overcome sin and temptation, and we may have great expectation for the view that we may see and participate in in our own circumstances. That is always never promised, but the hope of restoration still remains. So what we must do for one another is grab each other by the hand and pull one another up to the mountaintop and see God's goodness and glory far beyond the view of our present circumstance. And to say, do you see that God is still good in the future? Can you see that his purposes and plans will work out even if you can't understand why or when or how? It is calling to remembrance the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You must do that for those who are in your life right now. And friends, you will have time to do it for others and it will have a need for others to do it for you. So let us not stand far off from one another when we see another person in distress when we know the difficult circumstance a brother or sister in our church is going through, there we must encourage them and take them to the words of Jeremiah and says, friend, brother, sister, behold, the days are coming when the Lord will deliver us. The present circumstance is not permanent. It's only temporary. And though we may sit under the chastisement of God, he disciplines, Hebrew says, because he loves, because he's a father. So when we sin and we bring discipline upon ourselves, we see it as a joy. For God has greater purposes and plans that he will work together for our good. So after the strong word of judgment comes this needed word of hope. And with a new hope comes a new confession. He says, no longer will people say, recalling the exodus, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. There's a new confession, a new doxology. 
as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. This was a new confession that those who would be returned from exile would begin to praise God for how he delivered them yet again. Not simply for out of the hands of the Egyptians, but now out of the hands of an even greater and powerful enemy. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and ultimately the Persians. Again, though, because of sin and the cycle of idolatry and neglect will continue, they will fall to the Medes and to the Persians and to the Greeks and to the Romans. And by the time Jesus is on the scene, they're still an occupying force and God's people still feel controlled by a foreign nation or army. And so the truth of this statement is still there. There is a day coming where you say, not just as the Lord lives that delivered us from exile, but who will deliver us from the hands of the Romans? who will deliver us from the hands of our enemies, who will and has delivered us from the hands of our greatest adversary. There is a new confession that comes from those who are born of a new hope. But verse 17 reminds us that he will keep his eye on all those who work against him. He says, Behold, in verse 16, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are on all of their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations." Now, you may be led to believe that this is God speaking again of Israel. He says, I'm going to send fishermen and hunters to go and retrieve them as I restore them back to their land, but first I'm going to discipline them. But what he's actually speaking here is not continual judgment on Israel. He has just restored them. The promise of restoration is there. Now there is also the promise of recompense against his enemies. You fish, which is great for those who are fishing, but it's terrible for the fish. The hunter is glad to have caught its game and the food and sustenance provide, but the hunted know that it must hide from the hunter. He says, verse 17, My eyes are on all of their ways. It is not hidden. Their iniquity is not concealed before God. And he will repay all of the enemies of God's people who has led them into sin, who has polluted their inheritance with the abominations and and idolatries, he will deal with those who have rebelled against God. So at the end of the day, sin, Satan, the enemies of God, these foreign nations, they will all receive their due. And the knowledge of God's sovereignty will be seen and made abundantly clear. He says, Jeremiah will say, O Lord, my strength, in verse 19, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say that our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. What's God's response? Behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. He will make clear, both in the restoration of his people and the faithfulness of the delivery of his promises, and on the judgment he delivers not on his people, but on his enemies, that he is the Lord. 
His sovereignty will be made abundantly clear and the nations will have no other choice but to bend the knee and to acknowledge his strength. That all that they have worshipped are not gods, but they have rebelled against the true and living God. And now their judgment is upon them. Brothers and sisters, is this the God in which you trust? The issue of trust becomes the very core issue that Judah struggles with. And it's the core issue in our own hearts that we fail to trust and know that this is the God who is sovereign over all things. That we often put ourselves under his discipline by our own hand. It is Judah's fault in many ways because they have given themselves over to the idols of other nations. We see this as we continue to read in chapter 17. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, and it is engraved in the tablet of their heart and on the horns of the altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory." You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. They have given themselves willingly to sin and neglect, to the worship of idols of other nations. And so we see that the issue here is trust. They have failed to acknowledge God as sovereign. They have failed to, as it says in verse 21, to know that He is God, that He is Yahweh, who has made with them a covenant. They have failed to keep their oath. And so, with the curses of the covenant are enacted, they must fall upon them. They lose all that they have been given. It will be loosened and given to other nations. They will be given all of their heritage away. It says, the anger of God's fire is kindled and shall burn forever. You see, though this is a clear indication of the need of Judah to trust God. This is the last hope. Indeed, it's the only hope of God's people to not stand under condemnation. It is to trust God completely, without reservation. There are times in which we are hesitant to believe God because the lies of the world are so blindingly in front of us. That the music of the, of the song of the world is so loud and ringing in our ears, it is drowning out the voice of God. Our golden friends must be to turn our attention away from the world and give our affection and our ears inclination to God's voice. Where he has spoken, there he receive true knowledge, true wisdom. There he receive the knowledge that God is for us and not against us. And yet our heart often turns to deceitful and wicked things. He'll go on to say that in verse 9 and verse 10, that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, for who can understand it? But I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You notice the, the reason that Judah needs God's help is because sin, it says in verse 1, is, is engraved, diamond-tipped, engraved on the heart and mind of their soul. 
There is no refuge from the effects of sin. They cannot go to the altar and grab hold of the horns and claim immunity. There is no place that they can go to avoid the effects of sin on their hearts. It is engraved. It cannot be removed on the tablet of stone of their heart. They have given themselves to idolatry. Their lusts and desires are for everything and anything but God. Their appetites have grown so strong for lusts, for power, for sensuality, for idolatry, that they no longer have an appetite for the things of God, for His word or for His ways. They have become so corrupted in their thought and in their words and in their deeds that God must act, and so He will. Sin is so engraved in the heart and the mind that they need desperately God to do what only He can do. And quite simply, we see sin is a rebellion against God and invokes His wrath. There at the end of verse 4, he says that it will burn forever. Sin, rebellion, idolatry, rejection, neglect, this is all stirring up the anger of God like a fire kindled against them, which will burn until it is completely consumed. This is rebellion against God. This is the condition of the human soul. That man stands condemned before God because of the condition, the rebellion, and the corruption of their heart. It's not just Judah whose sin is written on their heart, engraved with an iron pen. It is each one of us who are born into this world completely corrupt by nature. But it does not mean that we cannot do good or there is no good. We are all made in the image of God, and so we possess the ability to act altruistically at times. But often that's the exception that proves the rule, isn't it? That every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we do not stand up to the standard which even our own lives would point, let alone God's words. So there is a judgment and a curse for those who would trust in themselves, whose heart is so hardened against God that they are constantly in rebellion against Him, giving themselves over constantly to the lusts and the desires of their own evil wickedness. But there is blessing for those who trust in God. So we all stand before God condemned, who has a heart which is wicked and deceitful, just like Judah's. But in verses 5 through 8, they borrow the language of the Psalms. It says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. There's rebellion. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited land, salt land. But, verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves will remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This is very reminiscent, right, of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who stands not in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffer, right? But the wicked are not so. So God will come and curse those whose strength and hope is in man, who trusts is in man. But those who trust in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, they're the, the blessing a peace, provision in God's presence is restored. So at the beginning of the spiritual journey, the bottom of the mountain, we see that God's promise of His presence is lost. 
taken away, withdrawn. And yet Jeremiah leads the congregation up to the top of the mountain to see that this hope will be restored again. And as we descend down to the other side of the mountain now, we do so with the knowledge of that promise of restoration and recompense, but also how we must live, how that hope and the presence and the peace of God is preserved within us, who will receive it and will be restored, how we are sustained in such joy in the presence of God. Because the corruption of the human heart can't be trusted. It's deceitful, it says. It's wicked above all things. There are people who are master of their craft, who can manipulate and make things seem like one way when they are indeed another. But there is nothing quite like the human heart in its sinful condition. It cannot be trusted. Its desires lead us away from God, not toward God, and we can do so even believing that we are faithful to God. We are often said to be dumb when it comes to many things, but when it comes to being evil, we invent new ways. We're innovative and creative and ingenious in the wickedness of our hearts. That's the the biblical view of man. But God, unlike us, will not be duped. He sees the heart. He knows the inclination of man. And he will give the fruit, both wicked or righteous, to those who walk according to it. So God is not like us, but he sees all things. He alone can understand the human heart. He says, I search the heart, I test the mind, and I give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So just like the tree that is planted by the streams, it will bear fruit of righteousness as it trusts in the Lord. But those who are like a shrub, trusting in the might of men, only will reap the ward, the fruit of of thorns and thickets. What does this journey tell us? It warns us, just like it is warning Judah, that sin, unchecked and undealt with, threatens to cut us off from God, possibly permanently. Sin threatens to cut us off from God. The presence and the promises of God are only given to those whose trust is in Him. But because of the deceitfulness and the wickedness of our heart, because of the engraving of sin deeply on the stone tablets of our hearts, we have sealed our fate. But it is for Christ that we give praise this morning because He comes and reconciles us to God through His own death and resurrection. He comes and says, I will give you a new heart. In fact, later we see the promise of the New Testament and the New Covenant later in Jeremiah is that it comes with the promise of a new heart. One which was changing from stone, on which the sin of Judah was written, to flesh, which beats in faithfulness and trust to God. Jesus reconciles us to God in his own body. He becomes even greater and better Jeremiah, who in his own flesh embodies the bleakness of sin and the bitterness of God's judgment by drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath. See, Jesus was, like Judah, hurled out of the land, cut off from God, brought outside of the camp. But he does so not because of his sin, but because of ours. He does so on our behalf. He suffers the bitterness of God's anger that was kindled against our sin. He takes upon himself the judgment of God. Just as Jeremiah was called to settle the burden 
of God's discipline and distance, Jesus takes it all the way to the cross. The prophet Isaiah says that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Sin threatens to take permanently, for eternity, the peace of God away. But Jesus secures the presence of God's peace in our life through taking on the punishment for us. Know, friends, that on the cross, though he never ceased to be God, Jesus endured the full wrath of God against sin. It was not a peaceful moment. Those few hours on the cross and those days in the grave were not one of peace, but of pure wrath. God's anger, white hot anger against our sins, completely absorbed by Christ. He who did not sin, and he knew no sin, but it says that he became sin, that we would have the righteousness of God. Galatians tells us that he was cursed, that we might be blessed. He became a curse. He took on the curse. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That's all of us. And Christ, who is only faithful to God, suffers like one who is to be cursed, that we would have the blessing of God. This is the only way that humans are reconciled to God. It is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We grab hold of that truth. We trust in it. Trust in it like you trust in the seat that you're sitting in. You trust in the wheels of your car not falling off as you drive home. You trust in it with your very life because it is your only hope. And the promise of that blessing, when God gives his peace to us, is that we live with new hearts. Transform a redeemed heart. Not the kind of heart that is given always only over to sin, but the kind of hearts now that are new and beats with life for God. And so the presence of God then becomes continually with us. It is not removed from us, but it is permanently fixed as a guarantee of our own inheritance and redemption. Romans 5 tells us that since we've been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Through what? Through the Spirit of God who has been poured into our hearts. This is what it means to be a Christian, friends. To have the indwelling presence of God living in you. It is the peace of God which can never be taken away. As as Paul would say in Romans, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. There can be nothing. For we are more than conquerors, he says. So the very presence of God is with us permanently. And though we may suffer discipline or chastisement because of our sins that we bring upon ourselves, we do so knowing that we can trust in the presence and the blessing of God for us. Not only this, but we can live the kind of Psalm 1 blessed righteousness that is described of those who have the new heart. We are not living in the curse, but living in the blessing that comes for those who are redeemed, for those whose heart has been made new. The Psalm 1 life of blessed righteousness is possible for you and I if our hearts are redeemed. And our hearts are only redeemed by the work of Christ and our faith in it. Friends, do you now trust savingly in the work of Christ? Has he given himself completely for you? 
Or do you look at him as a fixture in the tradition of your home, a man of great wisdom, of good works, but of something less than God, maybe someone to be inspired by and to model your life after, but not somebody who has killed himself for you? And friends, you are not a Christian. And the sin of your heart written there in stone is not erased, but remains. And the wrath of God, kindled against unrighteousness, has not been abated, but remains. But if you throw yourself upon the mercy of God, if you throw yourself at the foot of the cross and say, your death is my death, your life is my life, your spirit and presence is with me, and though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil. I will have a banquet in the midst of my enemies. My leaves will never wither. I will always bear fruit. Fruit in keeping with repentance, but fruits of righteousness because I have been made new. I'm a new creation. My heart is new. That's what it means to be a Christian. To live in blessed righteousness, not by a work of our own, but by the work of Christ empowered by the Spirit that leads us into the presence of God, always with us and never failing. What Jeremiah tells us is that though judgment will come, for Christians it has fallen on Christ and not us. But for those who have still in the rebellion rejected the good news of the gospel, it remains. And so our prayer must be as we go into the world to preach this good news, to proclaim that there is greater purposes and promise for all those who rebel against God, but it is only found in acknowledging your sin, confessing it before God, and throwing upon yourself upon the mercy of Christ on the cross. If you can do this, you will be saved. The goal this morning is not simply to beat our heads again with the wrath and the judgment of God, but to feast on the grace of God who saves us from sin. If that's a joy to you this morning, and we'll continue to sing and give praise to God and participate together in what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word and your work. We thank you most of all for Jesus, who died in our place. According to your purposes and your promises, you have brought about redemption and hope. And it is not found in our own strength or in our trusting of ourselves, but in our trusting of Christ alone. Blessed is the man or woman trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Christ is our security. He is our worth. So we give ourselves completely to his work, completely to his atonement. It is by his work alone that we are saved. Thank you, God, for allowing Christ to, in his flesh, take on the wrath and the bitterness of judgment for us that we may receive blessing and not curse, presence, peace, and prosperity, and not joylessness. So, Father, we pray that as we continue to sing, we'd be motivated by such a truth that we would, in joy and in thankfulness, sing loudly and proclaim boldly the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license.
If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Yeah.